that truth is not contingent upon how well we follow just the reality that you are God. And we're reminded this morning that your love for us was so great that you made a way that we could not even possibly fathom or imagine or do on our own. And so, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, as we hear what the prophet Jeremiah had to say through many, 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 many years ago, we just see, God, that you have a plan both the author and the perfecter of that plan for each and every one. Bless us as we study your word. Have a seat this morning. Young man had gone to the local bar and had too much to drink. Gets behind the wheel of his car, passes out, runs into a fence and a ditch and a pasture and ends up killing one of the cattle that were there walks away from the accident relatively unscathed. Police arrive, they arrest him, he's put on trial. He's told that he's gonna have to serve some time in the penitentiary and he's gonna have to make restitution to the farmer for whose cow had died. He spends about 18 months in prison, has to go to drug and alcohol rehabilitation and all that other stuff. About three years elapses from the time of the accident to the time that all the restitution is covered and paid and everything else. And by the, the eyes of the law, this man has now served everything he's supposed to serve. And justice has now been carried out. An action was taken. There was a loss. That loss was compensated for. Everything is now just. It is just as it was, just as it ought to be, just as if it never happened. But it did happen. That young man, after getting through that crisis, goes back to his local bar again, gets behind the wheel after he's had too much to drink, runs into a van, kills three of the five family members. Serves nine years in prison, gets out, goes to his local bar, has too much to drink, gets behind the wheel of the car, has yet another accident. Tell me, has justice been served? And how do we define that? And what truly is just that would bring back one life, let alone two or three or four? Justice is a very interesting concept because we very often get it wrong because the emotions that are attached to what we believe are justice are actually vengeance. Many of you know that I'm not a giant sports fan, but I did watch the World Series last night. Baseball's over, yeah, (laughs) right? Just in time for Thanksgiving, too. I mean, you know. The night before, the pitcher, Alvarado, had actually hit Alvarez in the back with a pitch. Did y'all see that? So this whole series has been interesting because we get five home runs at a loss. The next night, we pitch a no-hitter in the World Series. Justice has been served, right? And then we, we, we bean our star hitter with a, a ball in the previous game and walk him to first. And the next night, they bring the same pitcher up in the first, what, two pitches he throws, home run, the Astros go on to win the World Series. Justice has been served. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bernie Madoff, y'all know him. Stole a bunch of people's money. They're never going to get that back. 
you see an 80-year-old working at Southwest Airlines or at Walmart, it's probably not because they're choosing to do so. It's because Bernie made off with their money. <laughs> made off, get it? <laughs> right, because you can. How are they going to be made right? How are, how's it going to be just? He spent that money. How, how does he make up for what was supposed to be invested that they were counting on? When he, he spent it, he took it, it wasn't there. It's not, there. There's no justice in that, right? You know, a few of you are old enough to remember the 60s and 70s where the chant was no justice, no peace. And the ideal of justice was such that it, it, if this was done to me, something that, that has to be equal has to be made up for, for it to be just. And if we're not going to get justice, we're not going to have peace. Now, I have to be honest with you. It doesn't matter what the situation is that we're chanting no justice, no peace. I, I don't think you can have one without the other. And in fact, I think the only way to have true justice is to have true peace. And we're not going to have true peace with one another until we have peace with our Creator. I want to talk about justice as we look at Jeremiah chapter 50 this morning because there's really two types of justice that I want us to understand. There's justice as we talk about, then there's divine justice. And divine justice is a whole lot different than regular justice. In fact, I've got a, a quick definition up here that just basically says this, that justice promotes equity among humanity, but divine justice, however, sets things right between creation and creator. If you were to look at the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all those laws, all those laws that, that are, are in the Old Testament are basically designed to create a system of justice within humanity. I mean, even the Ten Commandments is a good example to show where the, the first five have to do with our relationship with God and the next five have to do with our relationship with one another. And the ideal is if we will do these things according to the law, then things will be just. And so some of those laws that you read in Deuteronomy and Leviticus say things like if a, if a man has a, a, an ox that is prone to goring and he gores somebody and a life is taken, then the life of the ox has to be taken as well. And, and there's this, this is what we agree upon as the law has been given to us to say, okay, if this happens, then this. And if this doesn't happen, then this doesn't happen. And so this ideal of justice means that there's an equity not only in the law saying that, that we know what the consequences are if it's violated, but we also know what the reward is if it's kept. And likewise, there's no surprise here because the law was very clear. You don't have that much to drink and get behind the wheel of a car and think that it's okay, especially if you've gotten away with it several times. But in man's system of justice, it will never be fair. I hate that word. Just got to be honest with you. Fairness, oh, I could go a lot of tangents on that. Especially if we look and say what happened to Jesus was certainly not fair. But it was just. Because in God's divine justice, he made things right between creation and creator, and he did so by putting the penalty of our law-breaking, of our sin, of our iniquity, upon the one who actually did none of those things, so that we might be in right relationship with him. And that is divine justice. Divine justice has also been perverted in a way where many of the rulers of the past have declared themselves to be appointed by God himself and to carry out God's rules, God's plans. We see this through the Crusades and the battles against the, the Saracens and the Moors. And you, you go back to history and you see all these things, particularly in the Crusades, there was this term, God wills it, right? 
and God put this king in place to carry out the king's justice. And we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. But the kings would get to such a place. Even David had a little bit of this whenever he sentenced Uriah to die because he'd had an inappropriate relationship with Uriah's wife. Hey, the king's rule is law. And what the king says goes. And because God appointed the king, he's the spokesperson for God. And so divine justice means God put me here to do this for a reason. You can see where humanity gets this all messed up, right? We even see this a little bit in some of our elections when we, we start looking and say, well, how did that person get elected? And, and on the Christian left or on the Christian right or wherever you may fall in that whole spectrum, you say, well, God must have allowed that to happen. Well, you're right. God allowed that to happen. And he's going to use that one way or the other. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God appointed that person to carry out their agenda. He appointed them to carry out his agenda. And I think this is where we really miss things sometimes because we watch human beings do things in authority and power and position or even on their own. And we get confused going, well, how can God, a loving God, a just God, allow those things to happen? I just want to remind you, God doesn't take away our free will just because he puts us in a position of responsibility or influence. We're still humans. We're going to make choices and decisions. This morning, I, I want to encourage you to just think about this for a moment, that divine justice is God putting things right between creator and creation. And that means that a, a divine sacrifice has to be made, a divine decision has to be made so that everything gets put back right. In, in, in my opinion, chapter 50 of Jeremiah basically tells us divine justice is God's way of renewing his covenant with his people. Now, I'm going to be very clear about that. That, that divine justice is God's way of renewing his covenant, his promise, his testimony about himself with his people. That, that doesn't mean all people of the earth. And I want to make that so specifically clear because I'm not saying that there aren't people that God can't save. I'm just telling you there's people who are going to choose not God. And because they're going to choose not God, he's not going to find a way to make things fair or just or right for them on their terms, but always on his because he's the creator. And the creator can do whatever he wants with his creation. And because God is not one of those just ambivalent type creators, he actually loves us. He's going to do what is right and not surprise. He's going to do what he said he was going to do to us and for us and with us. And he wants to do so. And so when divine justice is poured out, it is God's way of renewing his covenant. In fact, you could go back to Deuteronomy where that covenant was made and God said, I told you if you worship foreign gods, I told you if you sacrifice children, I told you if you did these things that I was going to bring judgment upon you. Not just punitively, but so that you would understand, I don't condone this. This is not how you behave. This is not why I'm going to send my son for you. This is not what it looks like to be a follower of me. Represent me well. There are 52 chapters in Jeremiah, and we're in chapter 50 today. We're going to do 51 next week, and that's going to be the end of our Jeremiah study because chapter 52, believe it or not, basically sums up the entire book of Jeremiah. So if you wanted to read that and go, oh, that's what Jeremiah is all about, you could do most of that. But where we are in chapter 50 is that the Babylonians have been God's chosen hammer, actually, is what this, this passage actually tells us, that they were the hammer sent against Israel, against Judah, and now against all these other surrounding nations who have been doing harm and back and forth. You have this severe disruption in this region, in the Middle East. I know y'all don't understand what that's like. Because it's still happening today, by the way. And so God sends uh, Babylon as the hammer to exact his justice. But 
If you look at it and don't pay attention, you'll think, well, God's allowed Babylon to treat his people poorly, and that is not the case at all. In fact, after judging all the other nations that we've seen from chapter 46 through 49, we see all these other nations that he used Babylon to also judge, and now he's saying, Babylon, it's your turn. Not because it's just time to come back around, but because of the way you've actually treated my people. Nebuchadnezzar was risen to power not only to exact judgment and punishment upon God's people for violating God's laws, but to preserve them for the future. And I know we don't like to think about that sometimes, but they weren't trying to preserve them. We see that in Daniel. We see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that in the process of capturing these people, exiling them in, now Nebuchadnezzar is trying to force them to worship his God or himself other than the one true God. And so divine justice has to carry out, and God says now it's time to deal with the hammer of Babylon. So look with me in in, in chapter 50, verses 3 through 5, because divine justice means that God repays those who harm his people. For out of the north a nation has come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee. And in those days, and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. You know, last week I asked questions about how many times do you have to be taught a lesson before it finally sticks? How many second chances do you have to have before you finally go, oh, that's what God's been trying to get my attention for? How many times does it have to happen? Generations are going to pass. Seventy years are going to be in exile under Babylon. But it won't be until about 300 years later when Alexander the Great comes in that God completely wipes out Babylon. And God can do that in his own timing, in his own way. But in the meantime, he's going to actually set up within that government for the Persians and the Medes to come and take out the Babylonians. And they're going to actually finance for the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And we see that in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. You you see, divine justice is happening because these people aren't just going to let them go. I mean, Pharaoh didn't do that in Egypt. Let us go out into the desert and worship. No, 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 no. And it took 10 plagues. And finally, a sea to crash upon them. Divine justice was served. Because I've never met a man who could part a sea on his own and wipe out an entire army. That's a divine act. And so divine justice means God repays those who harm his children. And Babylon has been harming the people of Judah and Israel for a long, long time. And God promised he would preserve a remnant to go back to Jerusalem, the city of God, and rebuild the temple. And there he will be worshipped, and they will be a light unto the nations. If nothing else, the divine judgment of God brought upon Babylon, the great oppressor, actually demonstrated to Nebuchadnezzar he was nobody he thought he was, and that the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, was way bigger than he ever thought about being. And he even did, this is so crazy when you start really peeling this back and looking at it. He says to them, for for out of the north a nation has come up. He's saying that Babylon was the northern nation that went and attacked Judah. And out of the north of them, another nation's going to come. There's always a bigger fish. There's always a bigger bully. There's always a bigger mean guy who is willing for the sake of power to get on board with God, whether they know it or not, and carry out divine justice according to God. I doubt seriously that Nebuchadnezzar knew exactly what was going on. I doubt seriously that he knew that God was using him to enact justice. But he did know that that the God of Israel was upset with his people. 
and that he was able to do some of the things he was doing because God said, it's okay because they broke my covenant, but I want to renew my covenant. And one of the things in my covenant is they will be my people and I will be their God and I'm going to be their protection. I'm going to their defender and their provider. And so divine justice means God repays those who harm his people, but it also means that God forgives the past sins and restores his people. And this is something that we miss out sometimes in justice because when you think you're innocent or you think you've been wrongly accused or you're an innocent bystander, which by the way, in God's economy, there is no such thing as an innocent bystander because we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so anything that happens in our world to us, no matter what it is, especially if we're just truly an innocent bystander, it's the product of sin that comes into this world that harms us all and makes us unright or unjust, not in the right place with our creator. And so divine justice has to fix that. We can't count on the courts to fix that for us. We have to count on God to put us back right. And so divine justice means God forgives the past sins and restores his people. Look with me in in, uh, verse 17 of Jeremiah chapter 50. It says, Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And now at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, and I punish the king of Assyria. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days, and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none. And no sin in Judah, and none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Now, this is a seemingly veiled hint that's kind of dropped in to this chapter. Because right now, on this side of heaven, we are all still prone to sin, and we're still impacted by the consequence of sin, both in our own lives and through the lives of others. So when innocent people get killed in a car accident, it is sin that actually brought that on. Not necessarily theirs. However, they are still guilty of sin, and that has to be dealt with. That's why we want our lives to always be in right place with God who's both a just and a justifier for us through Jesus Christ. Because we don't know how somebody else is going to mess it up and maybe end our life. We don't know how that's going to work out. But this veiled hint that's dropped in here says that God's going to restore Israel. And what you see what's happening here, Israel once was 12 tribes. And it was named after Jacob and his 12 sons. And Israel was the top 10 tribes who got wiped out by Assyria long before Judah and Benjamin, who was left, still occupied Jerusalem. And so these two tiny little tribes watched the other 10 get taken out by Assyria years and years and years earlier, and they did not learn the lesson. So God sends Babylon over to take out Judah and the rest of Benjamin. And now all of the nation of Israel, both geographically and the people, no longer dwell in the promised land that God gave them. But he says, one day they shall, and I will restore them back to that place. And when I look, I will see no sin in any of them. I will see no iniquity in any of them. Now, how is that possible? How is that possible? What he's hinting at is that someone's going to come and take away all their sin And they're going to live in the new Jerusalem as Revelation tells us. What he's hinting at is that only God can restore all this and make it just 
and put right relationship between creation and creator. And we need that to happen. And he says, all the places that I told you you're going to dwell, you're going to have, I'm going to be good on my promise, even though you have not been good on yours. Isn't that awesome? But look with me what's next. Divine justice also means that God pays the price to make everything right. You see, this is the portion of justice that we often miss, is that it costs somebody to make things right. I don't know how many of you received a a traffic ticket or uh, anything like that, but there's a couple of different ways you can plead those tickets, right? Guilty, not guilty, no contest, no low contendere. I'm not really sure what the difference of that is. I always get confused about I haven't had a ticket in a while, by the way. But what they all then tell you is, okay, if you'll plead no contest, no low contentre, or even just guilty and pay the court cost, then you don't have to show up to court and we'll just move on about this, right? But it doesn't say that you can say, okay, I'm guilty without paying the court cost. That, now, that's not the fine. You've got the fine and then you've got the court cost because somebody has to pay the judge. Somebody has to pay the clerk. Somebody has to pay the light bill at the courthouse. Even though you don't show up, there's a cost associated with the law being broken. And so when you get your next speeding ticket and it says you owe $186, you're going to come out $350 less later on, no matter what, no matter how you plead. You're going to fall short of the glory of the court. Many years ago, I did get a ticket for an inspection sticker that was out. And I'm driving through campus at A&M and I stop at a stop sign and there's a police officer standing in the median. He just looks and he taps on that window and he goes, so I pull over to the side, and another police officer issues me a ticket. A couple of weeks later, I show up at the Justice of the Peace. I'm about 15 people deep. The young man in the very front of the row, he's the very first person up there before the judge in the morning, and he says to him, why are you here? Uh, Your Honor, I have a minor in possession charge. Okay, how old are you? 20 years old. Okay. Is this your first offense? No, sir. I had deferred adjudication last year for the same thing. Okay. He says, well, how come you haven't taken care of this already? Because it actually shows that you were supposed to be here last week. And he says, well, I've been really kind of busy. hadn't been able to take care of this. In fact, I'm supposed to catch a plane later today. So, you know, that's why I hurried up to get up here to the front of the line. Oh, you don't have time. You're busy. Your law-breaking seems to get in the way of your regular schedule. He says, well, that's fine. Why don't you go have a seat in the back of the courtroom? You will be last on the docket today as the court closes at 430. And then he says, and for the rest of you who are asking for deferred adjudication today, I'm all out. The very first one ruined it for the rest of us, right? Now, don't, don't take into account we're all lawbreakers. We're there for a reason. The young man goes to the back of the court, puts his feet up in the chair, puffs and puffs a little bit. Contempt of court, that's 250 Next one's going to cost you three days in jail. By the time I got up, the dude was at another 250 and three days in jail, and I was like seventh or eighth in line. There's a cost associated with that, right? And everybody pays the cost of sin, everybody. And it doesn't matter how far you think you can be from that. There's only one person who makes that right. And in this case, it was the judge who could have said, I could ignore the law, I could lessen the law, I could go to the least extreme of the law, but somebody's going to pay today, and because of that kid's mouth, we're all going to pay today. And he's going to pay a little bit more. Because he didn't go in there with all these other charges, he went in there with one, and he kept on with the wrong attitude. An unrepentant heart is what we call that in the Christian circles. 
an attitude that said, I'm in control of my own life, and you can't make me. You want to bet? I'll give you three days to think about it in the pool. And meanwhile, all of your little friends are going to learn a lesson because of you. They're not going to learn a lesson from other people. I mean, come on. What are we going to learn? How many more times are we going to have to say, well, that's somebody else's problem. I'm going to get by with that. What we see is this beautiful picture in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 33. This is, to me, one of the most awesome pieces of, of, of Scripture in this passage especially because the Lord is speaking directly to his people and he says in verse 33, thus says the Lord of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast and they refuse to let them go. But watch this, their redeemer is strong. Friend, that is one of the most powerful statements in all of scripture. You can mess with my people all you want, but I'm warning you, their redeemer is strong. My, my daddy can beat up your daddy. My daddy's stronger than your daddy. My daddy created everybody, everybody and everything with a spoken word. And their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name, in case you're wondering. He will surely plead their case that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. In Jeremiah's prophecy that the Lord gave him concerning the affliction that's going to come to Babylon, who God appointed to carry out justice, divine justice, but they took it too far and said, we're going to continue to oppress them more and more and more because it satisfies us. God said, no, no, their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. And he, when he shows up, there will be no defense for you, Babylon. You can, you can stand before me, and you will. In fact, you'll kneel before me, and there is not a word you can say to justify your behavior towards my people. And the reason why I'm going to send the strong Redeemer is, is, is you look at the book of Ruth, which is a beautiful passage that helps us understand the kinsman Redeemer who has the right to go and recapture the property and the people that are in his bloodline. And God said, these are my chosen people, and I'm going to get them. It's what we see with, with Haggai and Gomer, where, where he goes back to, to get her. He redeems her. A cost has to be paid to pay the price for whatever is going on. And God says, their Redeemer is strong, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And nobody picked up on that one little passage there to say, you know what? We're familiar with this Lord of hosts because we've watched him do these things over centuries and centuries. In fact, many other nations were afraid of Israel because of their God. And he's about to show up. And instead of celebrating the king coming into town as they did when Jesus rode in on a donkey, it took him about 24 hours to go from Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him, crucify him. And the great redeemer showed up in town, and he is great and strong. And the people turned their back on them. Friends, our redeemer is strong. Look, I'm flawed. I make mistakes. I'm human as everybody else in here. But my Redeemer is strong. And it doesn't excuse my bad behavior. It doesn't condone my sin. It just says there is one greater than me and greater than my ability or willingness to even commit sin. That I don't die to sin. I die to not have to commit sin because Jesus died for it. Because my Redeemer is strong. It says that the bondage of my sin is such that justice ought to be served upon me regularly. 
and all the time. And Jesus says, I will take that punishment for you because I'm your, I'm your redeemer. You're my people, and I'm going to pay the price for that. This morning, I want to ask you some serious questions about who your redeemer really is. Who is your redeemer? I'm going to challenge your ideas of what that may actually be and what you think your redeemer really is. And I'm going to do so based upon our actions. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is that government cannot redeem you. Now, I'm going to challenge you on this. And I've been challenging by this. This is election week, and Tuesday we're going to see all kinds of things happen. There's many people thinking that the, the House has an 85% chance of flipping over the other way, and, and the Senate has a 54% chance of flipping the other way, and you know what? I don't flipping care which way it's going to flip. Because it doesn't matter, because that government's not going to save me. First and foremost, they can't save me from myself. I can do stupid all day long with or without their approval. Right? You can make whatever law you want. I have to choose to follow that or violate that. You can't save someone from themselves. You can't. Arrogance, pride, foolishness, man, all that adds up. There are a lot of folks, particularly amongst the evangelical right, that think, hey, once the government swoops over to the other side, things are going to get better. Let me tell you, the only thing that's probably going to get better should we have a Democratic president and a Republican House and or Senate, the economy is going to improve just a little bit. And, and do, do you know why? Because when the executive and the legislative branches are opposed to one another, nothing happens. Nobody gets anything done. They can't get this guy to sign it or these people won't approve it. Nothing happens. And there's something odd about our economy that likes status quo and stagnation. I swear they're a bunch of Baptists. We've always done it that way. We don't like change. Yeah, I know. I just hit you right where it hurts, right? I'm a recovering Baptist myself. Okay? Dealt with that all day long. These things don't matter. Our Redeemer is the one that's strong. The government's not going to do that. Look what John MacArthur said up here. I've got this quote up here. The Lord did not come as a political deliverer or social reformer. He did not rally supporters in a grandiose attempt to capture the culture for morality or greater political and religious freedom. Rather, his divine calling was to rescue the lost souls of individual men and women from sin and death. Friends, there's a lot of things in our culture that I don't like. There's a lot of things that are contrary to God's word that, that even if we were to pass laws or to change laws to not allow those things to happen, men are going to find a way to do that. And if we're hoping that the government's going to rescue us and redeem us, it's not going to happen. And it doesn't mean the government's bad. It doesn't mean they're not carrying out the divine justice of God. But it also means that because there are men involved, they're going to carry that to the nth. And they're going to be pushing their agenda probably more so than God's agenda. And what they don't understand is that God's allowing them to work in there because he's got a greater purpose and they're doing exactly what he wants them to do. And we as Christians miss the point in regards to divine justice to see that our world falls apart because of sin that's in this world that's not been dealt with. And there's a penalty for that sin. And sometimes we pay it up front and some people are going to pay it for eternity. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for those, 
For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Very misunderstood passage of Scripture. So God allows for these governors and these judges and all these other things. God does allow that to happen. But have you ever stopped to consider that maybe there's some truth to the statement that we get the government we deserve? Because as people who are, are hostile towards God, who have embraced sin and called what is evil good, we don't deserve better leadership than what we have. And likewise, the leadership we have is no substitute for the submission to the authority of God himself. And when we submit to God and we understand what we're supposed to be doing with him and what he's doing in carrying this out, we ought to be able to look at every human institution and say, you know what, this would be different, not because we had a different leader, but if people would actually look and go, you know what, God's a better solution than any law they can put on the books, any law they can write. Man, they can't even get time change right. of a biological male and a female. We have Supreme Court justices in our country that can't answer that question or more to the point, won't answer that question. That, that, that has nothing to do with their political bent. It has everything to do with looking and going, man, we're going to keep looking towards man, looking towards our, our human government, and we're going to be disciplining with every stinking thing until we bow our heart to the Lord, our great Redeemer who is God. Government can carry out what God wants carried out. Government can make things happen according to God's plan, even though they don't know it. That doesn't take away their free will. God's just playing within the realm of, I know they're going to make that decision. That's who they are. That's their character. I need them to make that decision because at some point, people are going to have to be a little uncomfortable with what's happening around here. And instead of blaming the lawmakers, which is easy to do, we need to take a little self-responsibility and go, you know what? My Redeemer is greater than any of that stuff. And I need to submit to him. And in submitting to him, I may see things happening in this world and be in complete disagreement with, but my Redeemer is stronger than all that. And maybe things have to get a little tight. Maybe things have to get a little hard for people to go, man, what do we do now? Cry out to your Redeemer. Don't write your congressman. Get on your knees and cry out to your Redeemer. Even better, pray for your congressman. Pray that they will turn to the Lord and say, you know, put me here for a reason. Maybe I need to start living that way. Secondly, morality is not going to redeem you either. I love A.W. Tozer. It's one of my favorites. He once declared, this generation has forgotten the gospel message does not clean up and shine the outside of a person, but it bores into the very heart and soul of every person and radically changes that person from the inside out. Now, I want you to think about that for just a minute. The reason why I want you to think about that for just a minute, because in, in, a, in, a, recent, in a recent post, the Christian Post said 54, 54% of Christians believe that good works is all that's required for them to become eternal life. And I want you to understand that for me, that's an oxymoron. 54% of Christians believe that good works is all that's necessary to get into heaven. There was one work done that took care of that, and that was the work that Jesus did on the cross. You didn't do it, you never can. You're not worthy of a sacrifice to pay for your own sins, let alone the sins of everybody else, but the Lamb of God was and did because our Redeemer is God. 
And so when we start looking at morality, which, by the way, moves all over the page, everybody's got their own ideal of what morality is and isn't, what is right, what isn't right, what's, what, everybody's all over the page on these things. We missed the boat. It was like the conversation that Jesus had. In Matthew 19, he says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. You will enter life if you keep the commandments. Isn't it interesting that we have a set of rules, we have a set of laws that God said, if you do these things, everything's going to be fine, but yet we look and go, you know, I really don't like those. Is there a different set of rules, a different set of laws? Maybe it's just for me. Hey, you know what, God, I don't really have time to deal with those laws. Hey, listen, I'm going to be 21 here in a couple of weeks, so, you know, being 20 and having a minor in possession, it, I can't be a little bit different. Jesus said, you're looking for another way around when I told you the way and you didn't like it. Because you didn't like it, you determined it to not be good. And by determining it to not be good, you come back and you try to flatter me by calling me the good teacher and asking if I can make an exception for you. Let me tell you something, folks. God made the exception for everybody because he realized that not one of us could enter the kingdom of heaven without his son Jesus and the blood of the sacrifice. That was the exception made for us because our Redeemer is great, our Redeemer is strong. And our Redeemer is willing to pay the price for us knowing that we can't pay it for ourselves. That leads me to the last point that only Jesus can redeem you. I want you to fully understand. You see, where most people miss this last point, I think, is one of two places. If God only knew about me, he wouldn't even bother with me. This is a lie. And the second lie, I didn't do anything that needs to be redeemed. I'm good. I'm happy with my life. I haven't harmed anybody. I'm more than capable of making my own decisions regarding my own life, my own morality, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, what I watch, what I enter, all of those things. Why do I need, I don't need redemption, I'm fine. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. There is no other way. There's not. And it's the simplicity of that message alone that causes me to ask 46% of Christians why you're the only minority percentage that understands that your good works will get you into heaven. You need more than just doing good. Should you do good things? Absolutely you should. But not out of compulsion. Not because you're trying to buy your way in. But out of response to a holy, loving God, a great redeemer who paid way more than you could ever possibly imagine to redeem you from death, hell, and the grave. It's the real place that people are going to go to. And for many people, their redemption lies in their own abilities and their own desires and the things that they think they can do and what they want to do or in government or in organization or in money or all these other things. They think their redemption falls in all those things, but I've never met anybody that at the very end of their life 
said, you know what? I made enough money. I worked hard enough to get enough good grades. I'm certain that I'll be in the chapel with Jesus. Let me tell you something. People who believe that don't move mountains. Babylon was this great oppressor. God had given them power and authority to make a lot of decisions, to enact judgment and justice upon his people. But it wasn't just because he was being punitive and mean. He was trying to show them at some point you're going to get to a place to say our only hope is the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. Jesus himself, the Lamb of Jesus. It's the only hope we have. And so we get the near prophecy of Babylon getting wiped out and we get the far prophecy of God saying the great Redeemer, the strong Redeemer is going to come upon Jesus Christ for every one of mankind. Church, I want to encourage you that as we look at this passage of Scripture and we see, oh, this is just Old Testament prophecy. This is something that happened a long time ago. I don't recognize the names. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I hope what you see is there's a promise there of God saying, this is who I am. This is how I act towards my people. This is what I'm willing to do. And then in the New Testament, we see that he actually did it. I'll read to you this last passage from Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 44. He says, Behold, like a lion coming up from the thicket of the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make them run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. Who is like you, O Lord? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Babylon and the purposes that he has formed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of the capture of Babylon, the earth shall tremble and their cry shall be heard among the nations. Divine justice sets everything right between creator and creation. And sometimes man is just kind enough to give God a working example of what not to do. Babylon's going to be that example. How they abused that power in carrying out the God's, God's authority over his own people to bring them back to him. No type of punishment was set to be final, but people chose the finality of it to say, if God's going to be this way, I don't want anything to do with him. And over and over and over again, the divine justice of God said, I'm going to make things right between my creation and me. And the only way I'm going to do that is through my sacrifice, and that's on the cross of Calvary. That's why this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.